Dr. Leo Roberts. Good night, Dale. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for coming to the podcast, man. And I mean, it means a lot to me, especially because you're from Cairns and we and you've come to Melbourne, not specifically for the podcast, <laughs> but hey, I'd like to think so. <laughs> it's one of the key things on my list when I came down here. So, well, there you go. Hey, um, look, before we start and before we get into the questions and the conversation, could you just give a rundown to me and the listeners of mm. who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so uh, I'm a researcher and I research a variety of topics really uh, in psychology and mental health, but the thing I really like to research is sports psychology and performance psychology. And I was able to begin that in about 2015 when I started a PhD in sports sports psychology and I was looking at this um, phenomenon that you and the listeners might be familiar with and it's called choking under pressure. Mm. Yeah, which is basically a substandard performance due to the pressure of the situation. And from there, I've kind of continued a, a research agenda in that area in sport and performance psychology, specifically looking at the effects of pressure and anxiety uh, and what we can do about that and, yeah, how that, how that all works in the performance situations. Is there anything you can do that's not medically invasive and so you got anti-anxiety pills which performers may take before they go on stage to help with it a bit more but yeah is there anything they can do physically or some sort of meditation or anything yeah so i mean there are lots of things um so in fact i would say most of the things are not medical and in a lot of high performance sport at least you can't take those Mm. medications so i mean a lot of um sort of well known that a lot of musicians for example classical musicians will take beta blockers to calm their nerves and and what that does is that sort of knocks out the the physiological response so it doesn't directly change their thoughts as such or anything like that or make them more positive about or more confident but they stop noticing that they're nervous like so they, they you know the heartbeat isn't isn't high and they're not shaking and that sort of that almost tricks the mind into thinking oh this is actually a safe situation this is a calm situation you know and that can reduce their their overall anxiety and allow them allow them to play well but for example in a lot of sports like golf and other sports like that sports where you kind of have to keep your calm keep your nerve you're not allowed to that's doping basically so so uh, a lot of yeah a lot of the things people do with sports psychologists is well everything really is non-invasive it a lot of it's to do with talking uh and then yes you do have things like meditation that that people can do but yeah a lot of it is about approaching the situation in a different way and learning to understand your thoughts and what they mean and what they don't mean and ways you can train ways you can prepare i imagine pressure comes from Specifically, performing in front uh, in front of a crowd. Now you mentioned golf. Mm. I mean, yeah, golf gets its crowds, but then you think of something like the NFL mm-hmm. or AFL Grand Final or mm-hmm. the NRL or soccer, or where the crowd's just roaring. Mm-hmm. Would the interventions differentiate from sport to sport in that aspect? I think so. I mean, the the audience size does matter. But also, 
the audience can be bigger than it looks. Mm. So um, if you're, let's just say you're not an elite performer, okay, which is uh, probably a, a lot of where sports psychology is best placed, you know, like the elite performers, they're very good already. You know, they kind of work some things out, whether that was with the assistance of psychologists or not, you know, they kind of have that mental talent to sort of, to some extent. But those those performers that aren't quite at that level, you know, the they might not be performing in front of people, but there might be people that they know who are going to see their results. For example, maybe maybe the selector of the next level team up or something. You know, they if they they know that that person is going to look at their results. So it's not just the size of the audience; it's it's who's looking, how important that is, and and whether it's going to like impact impact that person's status or not back to your question uh, does the intervention matter in different kinds of sports or if there's a bigger audience yeah in terms of crowd size i don't actually think so uh and and a lot of athletes who perform in like in front of large crowds apparently not something i've done but uh (laughs) apparently kind of experience it as white noise and they, they don't notice it that much you know and they don't necessarily think about it that much but i think the basic principles apply actually yeah there's a lot of that in fighting sports you hear fighters whether it's mma fighters boxers where they're so focused on the task at hand mm. especially if there's physical danger present mm. someone's trying to hurt right, you right 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 all that adrenaline pumping through i can imagine would just cause such a focus that you yeah. probably wouldn't even notice the crowd until it's done yeah i think the situations that are framed by survival mm. like actually genuine physically threatening situations i think that's a time that humans are pretty good at focusing yeah fight or flight yeah there are a lot of sports and performance situations where you know like they're non-lethal mm. they're clearly the the biggest threat ultimately is embar- <laughs> is embarrassment you know that's that's pretty much the extent of it that can still really affect people mm. though like and that can really affect their performance but yeah having actual survival on the line i think that that does seem to to help to some extent yeah people focus but you raise a good point it's all about it's all about whether the person can focus on the task or not i mean that that's really the biggest thing so it sort of doesn't matter if the audience is big or small the intervention is always trying to get at that idea you know to try and enhance the focus on the situation at hand and not to think about too much you know what's going to happen what the audience is going to think if that happens you know and what's going to happen to me if i fail and all those futuristic thoughts is kind of like trying to bring bring that person back to what they need to do now mm. and that doesn't really matter if the audience is big or small that it would be the same intervention yeah. as a sports psychologist uh, coming to focus we just talked about focus then is mm. there much of a, a hand in hand what am i trying to say here does focus and sports psychology go hand in hand i should say uh yeah so just one thing i'm not actually a sports psychologist um, okay i don't have that title it's a protected title that I don't have. I don't have that specific degree, but I do research sports psychology. Anyway, that's a minor point. Yeah, I think it does though. I think that the focus is a is a key issue 
and maintaining attention, you know, in appropriate directions is a key issue in sports psychology, you know, a huge issue in performance. And yeah, certainly something I'm interested in. Yeah. I wonder if there's a way to increase attention before going on the field or right. going into a fighting sport or just any sport in general, if there's a way to enhance focus. So, yeah. it, I mean, there's supplements that I, I take. Uh, so there's natural supplements that I take like oh, yeah. um, uh, Lion's Mane, uh, Alpha GPC, stuff like that. Um, I'm not really sure. There's There are studies that it works, but there's also studies that it doesn't. It's kind of... So I also wonder if it's just placebo for me. But are you aware of any supplementation that could help with attention and focus perhaps uh, yeah. for people going in sporting events yeah so not so much i'm not too into the i'm not too aware of the supplement mm. situation sounds like you probably know more about that than me but definitely there are general performance effects on focus for example sleep you, mm. know, you know is is meant to be you know a significant predictor of of attention ability to focus on the things you want to uh and you know and i'm sure that that diet and exercise can contribute and that's probably where the supplement supplement thing would come in Mm. and yeah i'm not really aware of those studies Mm. what what sport do you use those for no i actually just use it for day-to-day life just to day-to-day life yeah um i find personally so something like uh, lion's mane right which is a mushroom right it basically just helps me learn. I, at least I, find, I think it does. Uh, it could just be pure placebo. Studies on placebo effect have been quite strong. Yeah. So whether it's a placebo effect, I'm not too sure. Alpha GPC as well. I also use right. that for focus. Um, yeah, okay. It seems to help. But yeah, I don't use it for any sporting events. I mainly use it for learning or if I have a podcast coming up, learning right. for a podcast coming up. Okay, I see. Um, anything like that so there is one supposed hack for we call it a biohack if you like for performing under pressure it's something i've actually looked at myself because it intrigued me basically it's contracting if you're a right hander and you contract the left hand like 30 seconds or a minute or something before a high pressure event then there is some evidence in sport that that actually helps your performance under pressure whether that's through better attention or whatever, that's not really, that hasn't really been elucidated. But, but uh, several sh- studies have shown that in right-handers, contracting the left hand can result in an enhanced or at least a non-degraded performance under pressure and anxiety. And there's a there's a little bit of neuroscience behind that. So when you contract the left hand, what you do is you prime the right hemisphere of the brain mm. and what happens in you know when you look at neuroscience when people become anxious and perform poorly then there's sort of an overactivation of the left hemisphere and what this could be is like verbal interference you know almost like overthinking so mental chatter mental chatter exactly and so the basic notion is and it's a little bit vague and you know the brain is a hard thing to understand and so the mechanism is not really well understood but the basic idea is if you can if you can like stimulate the right hemisphere then you more or less prevent the left hemisphere from dominating the movement and the action 
and that's the theory. However, I did try to find this myself. I did research this in a typing task, mm-hmm. not a sport, but it's a nonetheless like a movement that a lot of people have automated. And we got hundreds of students to do these hand contractions and, and we, um, we made them type in a low pressure situation as fast and as accurately as they could. And then we tried to enhance the pressure by, um, we made them share their, they were on a Zoom meeting, we made them share their Zoom screen with us and we watched them type and we introduced some prizes and we made up some cover story about looking at, 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 at checking how often they looked at their fingers. Uh, and yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't find an effect, but it has been found a few times in sport. So I don't know exactly why we didn't find it, but yeah, it's, it's an idea that's out there in sports psychology, in mainstream sports psychology. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I suppose you could really, if it, if it's only been shown to work in sports, I suppose the only way to test it out would be in a sports environment. Yeah, and it is possible. Maybe there's something specific about sporting situations. It was they showed positive effects for this hand contraction in tennis serving, I think, uh, taekwondo, kicking, a couple other sports. I wonder if that would help your less dominant hand. So I'm an NFL fan, right? Obviously, when you come to the quarterback, of right. quarterback's got a dominant hand. Oh, I suppose they're good yeah. with both hands, but me specifically, I'm right-handed. Yeah. I wonder if, as you said, flexing my right hand for just say 30 seconds might help concentrate better with a neuron connection with my left hand when it comes to the throw. Yeah. Well, that's. It's, it's as good an explanation as any, actually. Um, so this was only ever done with right-handers, for one thing. Mm. Left-handers are a little bit different, and they have slightly different brains, and they have different amounts of crossover connections. So someone should probably do that with, with left-handers. Through the corpus callosum? Is that what exactly, you're through yeah. the corpus callosum. Mm. Yeah, there's a different proportion of fibers crossing over in left-handers and right-handers. Wow. And there are a bunch of weird effects with left-handers, like there's an over disproportionate number of u.s presidents who are left-handers and there is some evidence that left-handers are less likely to perform motor skills poorly under pressure as well not not really well replicated or anything but there's some like hints (laughs) there is something about left-handers would that mean there'd be a possible statistic that dementia alzheimer's could be less in left-handers yeah i don't yeah i'm not too sure about that i don't know just with the the way you were going about that, yeah, that would be that's interesting. Well, I mean, if there is some serious differences in left handers, then we would expect to find a bunch of differences. Mm. But yeah, I'm not sure about Alzheimer's. No. So winning and losing in sport. Yeah. I imagine, obviously, the way you feel about winning and the way you feel about losing has very different effects. What are the, should I say, neurological or psychological effects of winning versus losing? Yeah, okay. This is a good question. I mean, so definitely like in many sports, losing is sort of the most frequent thing you do. You know, uh, not not all sports, but like I think about tournament sports like mm. golf and things like that and, and, free, and even tennis. I suppose you win matches, but you lose the tournament, you mm. know. I mean, I think, I think overall there's a lot of losing that goes on. Mm. Um, there's some research I know about on choking which is sort of like not just losing but kind of losing in a dramatic way so Mm. sort of like a like a self-made collapse 
you know, like a... So self-sabotage almost? Exactly, yeah. a self-sabotage. You know, there's really no one else to blame. It's like your opponent or your opponents weren't necessarily, you know, in your mind better than you, <laughs> you know, um, but you kind of, you know, lost yourself. And this does have, this can have severe effects on people and it can lead to withdrawal and withdrawal and from the sport and a loss of self-worth and, and things like that. You, of course, counter a bunch of athletes who are very resilient and, and are persistent and, and they try and try again. There's in the, in, in the literature on choking, a lot of people bring out this classic example and it's really old, but it's, it's a tennis match in 1994 when Jana Novotna lost to Steffi Graf in the Wimbledon final. And Novotna was winning, I think she was winning 4-1 and maybe 30-love or something. And from there, she sort of collapsed really dramatically and lost. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell has written a bunch of books. I don't know if you're familiar. No, I'm not familiar with Yeah. Either. Anyway, he, he, he wrote this sort of famous article. I think it was in the New Yorker. And she said, and he said that, she basically became a novice, you know, at that moment. You know, she played like a, a novice at that point. So it's a very dramatic example of, of choking. And the interesting thing about it was that, like, I followed tennis a, a lot and I played tennis when I was younger. And I remembered that. I and, I, and I knew about that that incident. But what I forgot about was that Jana Novotna actually won Wimbledon two years later. And I didn't even like remember that like I was really biased by that choking event but in fact she was incredibly resilient and actually actually came back and and won the tournament ultimately so it's not like a you know it's not necessarily a sentence you know having a dramatic loss like that to a, a bad career or withdrawal it's really a person to person thing um winning well you know it obviously feels really good and you get the rush of those dopamine. chemicals, yeah, like yeah, dopamine um, in particular, and it and because it's like intermittent, it can sort of create an addictive quality. So you can sort of come back and back and back just for the occasional moment of of experiencing that high again so a little bit like gambling in that sense that you get this occasional payoff and, and in situations where we get an occasional payoff it can be could be kind of addictive and also hard to extinguish so you could lose and lose and lose and lose and still be keen to you know try and get that feeling again yeah i actually think failure is really important um right. a lot of people when they fail they think you know oh, it's just not right for me i I personally think life is all about failure and you should fail. If you haven't failed, then I think you're not doing life correctly. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the hard things and the things that matter where you will fail the most. Exactly. And pushing through failure to succession is, to me, one of life's greatest gifts because it's... I mean, yeah, it's that dopamine rush all over again. But to me, it's it's so important in terms of a life lesson of, okay, if I just keep going and keep yeah. going, I will eventually get what I'm striving for. That's totally true. 
And yes, yeah, so if you never fail, well, what does that even mean? I mean, that probably means that the scope of your activities is so narrow and so easy, you know, that you can just do it every time. Mm. And yet, as you say, anything that really pushes the boundaries and forces you to grow uh, will be so difficult, sufficiently difficult that that you'll probably re- fail repeatedly. And through failure, that's obviously feedback. You know, you don't get much feedback through winning. It's just like, oh, I did everything I should have, <laughs> more or less. Mm. You know, uh, and through through failure, yeah, you get a lot of feedback. And if you can not be too disheartened and treat the process as a learning process, essentially, where, you know, well, I didn't do that well today, but but I kind of have something and I got a piece of information today. Like I got something out of this, you know, and I can try that next time. And you, yeah, so if you, you sort of treat it as that kind of long-term mastery process i suppose where you know one day i'm going to be as good as i can be because i'm going to take these little lessons and get better and better and better then uh yeah well that's the recipe for success i do wonder what these psychological effects are of choking going into a sporting event and leaving a sporting event yeah so i i it results in a lot of people in a dropping confidence and it can seem like but what is that? I mean, right. they've obviously been through so many sporting events where they've won and they've done well and they've right. obviously done something to get to this position. Right. So where is all that coming from? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, what is the question exactly? Where does... Yeah, so I suppose I overloaded you there. So I, the first part was the psychological effects of choking going into a sporting event mm. and during a sporting event because you spoke about that tennis match she was doing really well in the beginning and then she just suddenly choked whereas a lot of people they'll just choke in the very beginning yeah that's true that's true a lot of people um will can experience like a lot of anxiety in the first place and then almost like rule themselves out of having opportunities to succeed and yeah at the sort of a different kind of choking is where they've kind of got really close to the cusp of success and then they've become overwhelmed with the possibility of success and what that would mean and how that would affect their status and how people see them. They've lost their connection with the task and become sort of really preoccupied with these futuristic concerns about what would happen and then fail. And at the... The hardest part is, I think, when there is an expectation that success should now be easily achieved. So if someone gets right to the edge of success and they're in a dominant position in a game or or a tournament or or whatever, or anything really, then, you know, a lot of people around them, like you hear it in sports commentary all the time, and a lot of people around them in the audience will imagine that, well, it's easy. You just do what you, you just do what you, you you did before and and you'll win and that means that you know that's when these like ironic thoughts can kick in for people and be like well what if i did fail at this moment and that would be because everyone thinks i'm going to win and everyone thinks it's easy and yet what if i did and that would be hugely embarrassing and this is the kind of thought process that shame that people can go through and ultimately it leads to yeah the possibility of shame which is a really deep deeply rooted 
you know, emotion for people. I think shame is very much socially constructed. Yeah. So, for example, if I was to do something and only I knew about it and I didn't do well and I failed, well, only I know about it. So I'm not going to judge myself too much. Sure. But then if my family and my friends and my peers knew about it, now I've got people to impress. Yes. So, and then you might have people around you, like family and friends who are expecting you to do well, possibly giving you compliments like, oh, we know you can do it. You're going to do well tomorrow. Right. And then you're going to have that thought in the back of your head of, what if I don't? Or what if I, what if I lose? And And it's a very natural thought. So you're almost eating yourself alive. Yes, and I don't exactly know why we have those thoughts. I mean, I have some ideas, but that's a very common... What are your ideas? Uh, well, it, they're very evolutionary-based, I suppose. Hey, man. <laughs> well, we're here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I believe we come from monkeys. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> if we think about like where performance anxiety even comes from, even comes from then i think we can sort of get to this idea of why we have these like random mm-hmm. seemingly random negative thoughts so there was a point it's all about it's all about the fact that we're social beings basically and there was a point in our evolution when we formed groups when, you know a social hierarchy i mean exactly if, if, if i can hunt and you can gather Right, and that was a, and that was like one of our you know, humans' biggest evolutionary achievements to form mm. social groups, and it was really helpful for um, defensive purposes, you know, against external threats, and it was good for collecting food, um, and it was good for finding just survival in general, potential mates, you know, like in, in the evolutionary scale, it was just like a really great innovation. It worked really well. <coughs> And associated with that is a sort of a, a, a kind of a fear got built into that about the possibility of being excluded from the group, where if you are excluded from the group for some reason, then that would have been potentially lethal or definitely like genuinely damaging to your survival mm. prospects. And so the, the theory is that some part of our brain continues to register these situations where we might be in some way socially excluded or at least moved down the social hierarchy a bit as a genuine survival threat. Probably this is like the amygdala. And yeah, other, I was going to say the amygdala is very much associated with fear. Are the very old, hmm. essentially ancient parts of the brain, part of, they're called survival circuits in our brain. And they're still connected to these social, they're not just connected to snakes and falling and other things that will kill us they're connected to potential drops and rooted to fear in the social hierarchy mm-hmm. you know and potential exclusion from let's say for being like appearing incompetent you know so if you appear incompetent now in a sport well probably no one will care that much and it's not actually a survival threat but at some point in our evolution if you couldn't do something useful then you might have been kicked out of the group you know and that's probably where that's probably where the the fear lives on in the brain yeah and so i think a bunch of things can happen when when we have that kind of anxiety around shame and one of them is negative thoughts and and negative thoughts appear almost as like a signal well this is a dangerous situation 
you shouldn't you shouldn't be here like you need to like kind of get out of this situation you know it's like a warning that the trouble is is potentially coming and of course if you're in a tournament or something and where you actually can't really leave you know that would probably be more shameful than continuing to play so you have to keep playing but you play with this you play with these negative thoughts so you know the the whole the whole goal of sports psychology i suppose is to help people manage those thoughts and and those situations and and these essentially ancient warning signals that are not particularly helpful and not even really that relevant necessarily but they're there and they're real and they feel real and yeah they make us scared we also like to compare ourselves to people too which i find odd yeah i I find it really strange that i do understand that we are social beings Mm. and the act of comparing ourselves to another person is just probably a social hierarchy thing why is this person doing better than me and now they're probably doing Mm. sexually better than me and they're probably doing financially better than me which is just resources yeah but I, I, I do I do find it strange. I, I really do find it strange. I, I don't see the benefit of comparing personally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is like a status anxiety, mm. uh, which is yeah, a really related anxiety. And it does seem to be kind of caught up in this, you know, this importance of groups and importance of asserting a position of utility and, or, or dominance in a group, you know, climbing the social climbing the social hierarchy you know is is probably in some sense adaptive evolutionarily adaptive and and that that could be where 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 it all comes from this is all a bit mysterious of course um you know we don't know a huge amount about the evolution of the mind it's a lot of these well you know it is evolution It, it, it i think it all just comes back to evolution personally yeah um but yeah the uh, status anxiety is is a is a really common thing and it can yeah lead to great suffering i mean how far we're not that far away disconnected from our predecessor ancestors no that the neanderthals i mean we only became homo sapiens what three hundred thousand years ago i think it's as of right now and then before that that's not that long ago i mean you think about the age of the earth or the age of just our whole ancestral line in general i mean i think our whole ancestral line is like i think it's around like four to six uh five to six million years or something yeah and then like you got us to three hundred thousand. dude that's that's not and then you got it's a the, small slice that's, that's, that's really tiny man. Uh, yeah so yeah. it makes sense that we haven't really evolved past these social dynamic things yeah and social media just makes that worse I think especially the comparison thing. Yeah. You know, because we see these individuals online who are supposedly living these glamorous lifestyles, but let's be honest, they're probably just not. They probably just went to some beach and took some photos <laughs> and pretended that they were on vacation, but they're really not. It's just social media is very, very toxic. Well, it's, um, it's very easy to curate, of course, on mm, social media. Yeah. And yeah, we don't learn anything about anyone's real life from social media. No. If we care to think about it. Yeah. So you raise an interesting point, actually, though. Um, so, and it sort of relates to audience size, and this is one of the modern 
issues I think that people face is that that if they if they do have some embarrassing performance or something like that, you know, it it can be it's probably going to be recorded, it could be viral, you know, it can be spread. You know, this ease of communication, it's not particularly helpful. You know, when people are trying to like stay focused on on the target task at hand. Yeah, well, we went from performing in front of domes to now performing in front of masses of millions strangers everyone yeah. <laughs> yeah performance anxiety yeah is there a way to so if you feel like you're choking during a game yeah what what's the way around obviously you, there's ways to get around it before a game there might be yes. things you do breathing exercises meditation we spoke of that before uh-huh, uh-huh. what about during a game I, I suppose it depends which game because some games you can do breathing exercises yeah yeah. And or a golf, yeah. But well, if, if, you're, if, you're, under, if you're under like a stressful situation, like during a tennis match or during a soccer match or AFL or NFL or whatever you're a fan of. Right. So I still think there's like moments of time in all of those sports that you listed. You know, there are like breaks and there are like in tennis, especially, you know, there's breaks between points. There's breaks in the game. In NFL, there's a bunch of. NFL there are I suppose those are a little bit of a bad example but we'll we'll say something like soccer or AFL where you're just running all the time yeah yeah okay Um, not much I think like if there is no break and there's no opportunity to collect Mm. your thoughts I think it will be difficult Um, but a lot of the instances we see even in AFL of like well, some of the instances we see are in, like, for example, the set shot goal kicking. Mm. You know, these are like the self-paced movements where there is actually a bit more time to think. Mm. And this is this can be a bit of a breeding ground for negative thoughts when there's this actually opportunity to, to think about what you're doing and, and what it means. So I think when a player is running and passing, you know, that's a little bit more conducive to being in the moment. Would you even be thinking at all during that moment or would you just be reacting well i think ideally you would just be reacting and this is this is the hard part about for example the set shot goal kick Mm. is that you're no longer in that situation and you have to initiate the action and i mean it should theoretically be easy but the this is when the ironic thoughts can kind of emerge in this break in play uh and so it is a question about what you do and it needs to be it needs to be pretty subtle doesn't it like it can't be you can't do too much um but you might be able to restructure your thoughts a little bit you know so there might be something like where you're like oh i think i think i'm gonna miss this like this doesn't this doesn't feel right you know and you might be like be able to be like well this is actually an opportunity you know like this is all I can see is threat, but this is actually an opportunity for me to practice my goal kicking in a situation that really matters, you know, and taking a long-term perspective, you know, in the future, uh, maybe through this kind of practice, you know, I can become better at goal kicking. So you can kind of like under pressure, so you can kind of twist it from a threat to an opportunity. So that's one, one possibility. A lot of people like to accept the miss or the loss. They're like, well, you know what? If Lunch I miss, I miss. Yeah, mm. it could happen. 
I'm going to be okay, you know. So it's kind of like that little twist, you know, in, in your thoughts where you're just like, well, actually, that is a possibility and I'm comfortable with that. And that can create a little bit of freedom, you know, to, to go through the motion in a more of a more of an expert way. There are other things that you can you can do like yeah you can do like a closing the eyes and imagery and this is this is known to be effective as well and that doesn't that doesn't take very long either but yeah i think those like little ironic you know little twists in the thought processes i think is is where where people need to go and i think that could be effective have you ever given much thought into music yeah into how it acts on performance Oh right, you mean uh, like as a treatment? Is that what you mean? You mean not music psychology? Not, I mean, I suppose you could go that route as well. But I was, and we can go down that one. Um, but I was, I was mostly thinking about how music does on performance. So let's just say someone's before the game, they have got their headset on, they got whatever music pumps them up. It's kind of oh, like yeah, something you listen sure. to in a gym. You know what I mean? Yeah, some yeah, people yeah. like heavy metal. Some people like yes and i think uh even you could take battle for instance you could take old battles where so the vikings for example mm-hmm. they had the drums do 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 yeah. do do you know it's that it's, sure. it's like a it's like a, a rhythm and, and yeah it's oh, primal <laughs> and yeah you can almost feel it yeah 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 have you given much thought into yeah music into performance yeah so i think you know it's important for an athlete to control their arousal levels to some extent you know um and it depends from sport to sport some sports you want to be calm and some sports you don't want to be calm you want to you want to have a lot of energy you know so yeah the the music needs to be kind of like tuned to that you know and, and if you can you find a tune that can sort of you know pump yourself up then that's great you know to run onto the afl pitch and that that's like that's like give you that energy you need you know to to do that really physical and fast activity and yeah if you're like a shooter or something you know you want to have heart rate deceleration Mm. so you're probably going down some sort of meditative you know classical Mm. sort of so but it definitely has an effect on arousal so you know it's a yeah but it has to be adapted to the Mm. kind of activity you want to do do we understand what music what music how music affects us psychologically slash neurologically? Um, some people do. <laughs> t- no, what I mean by that, in terms of uh, sports. So in terms of performance, uh, I should say. Um, music has been used as, a, as an intervention for performing with anxiety. Um, so it can, and I think it's been shown in some studies to be effective so um playing something positive for example i think there was one study and it was this song on the bright side of life i don't know if you know that who's who sings it it's a beatles song but probably right yeah i definitely don't know that man. <laughs> <laughs> look nothing against beatles yeah fans, but oh, I, I, don't I, don't know. Beatles. Um, I don't know obviously look, look, i've I, said um, it now but i'm not sure <laughs> i'm not sure who it is but it was it was effective um i think the only beatles songs i've heard is i want to hold is that i want to hold your hand yeah, and, uh, yeah. I just wasn't a fan. I'm right. sorry. I just wasn't a fan. <laughs> I, I, I don't get it. I'm not of that era. But look, 
But I oh. think to your question, sorry, yeah. that the yeah we're probably in the infancy of actually understanding neurological effects of music mm-hmm. in the sport performance context. Like I don't see much. I haven't seen much research on that. I have seen music used as a way to calm people down mm. and as a way to distract them from the situation, distract them from paying too close attention to what they're doing, which you know can have an interfering effect and overthinking and over chattering. Um, and yeah, so that and in doing in thinking about the music, it really could be anything, but in thinking about the music, which I suppose is easy for us to think about, then they can allow a more automatic process to occur you know and when you train a lot in a certain sport it essentially becomes automatic you don't have to think about it anymore to, to do it well more or less and and so by yeah focusing on music they can allow that process to occur hmm. and those that's the kinds of things i've seen in the literature but yeah i don't know much about the neurology i'm not sure we know much about that yeah i'd be very interested to see more studies on it only because like i go to the gym pretty regularly yeah and I use music, I listen to the music in the gym and to me, like I'm sure people who are listening to this and also go to the gym, you forget your headphones, it's dreadful. Right. Working out with that music to me is dreadful. Right. It's it almost like it zaps half of your strength. At least it does to me personally. But okay, so and you find depending on the music you're listening to, you can lift more or yeah, things personally. like that. So yeah. I find if I'm going into a lift and I find a certain song Mm. it almost like it it heightens my state of being in that moment yeah okay i know it sounds strange yeah but in terms of focus in terms of strength and i suppose it could be a subtle adrenaline kick uh-huh. maybe maybe a subtle epinephrine uh, yeah possibly oh, i'm not too sure yeah but that's just what it does for me and yeah but it can also like f- focus i suppose well, it's like almost like a distraction from what you're doing, and it can kind of like heighten heighten your focus on something else, and that might, in the gym context, distract you from the pain, for example. You know, like if you're focusing on the music, then you don't notice the pain as much. I gotta tell you, I still feel the pain. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's just an idea. Yeah. <laughs> now, for me personally, it just I feel like I'm a heightened version of myself. That's yeah, just that's okay. just a interesting personal uh, feeling for me. That's why I do wonder what it what it does for performance just in general and even in even um so performance and anxiety obviously really linked so what would even do in that aspect yeah i mean that they're sort of linked i mean sorry that's not really your question but i'll just diverge yeah that's all right there is so i wouldn't want to create the impression that if you're anxious you necessarily perform poorly and that's not because that's not really true. And there's a lot of evidence that people can be very anxious and continue to perform well. Now, sometimes it results in you know some sort of a choke or some other you know poor performance like that. But a lot of people are operating at high levels of anxiety, at least for some period during during their performance, and they've kind of learned to accept its presence and they understand what it means and what it doesn't mean, and they can sort of treat it as kind of an energy. As a you know, like it's just like a source of energy as opposed to something that's necessarily going to bring me down. And they sort of know these things about it, and they have this belief that it's there. It's okay to be to be in this ancient state, and they can still perform. 
you know, when you look at the evidence of anxiety, it doesn't really look like a particularly helpful force for human performance. You know, it's kind of like results in a bunch of physiological changes that are not necessarily helpful. It reduces the efficiency of our neurology. It changes our eye movements, less focused eye movements. But having said all of that, people can still like maintain their level if they kind of know how to handle it. So... So it's yeah. basically you can use that fuel to help you or burn you up. And that's, yeah, and that's kind of a cognitive restructuring that, that I was sort of alluding to, like restructuring your ideas about what's happening and a very natural inclination when you're anxious is to go, oh, this is really negative. This is, I don't feel good. I don't feel right. I don't feel confident. You know, I think this is going to go wrong. But if you can kind of restructure those thoughts and it's like, well, actually, at least I've got a lot of energy or at least I'm not complacent you know at least i'm doing something it just means i'm in a decent position you know that actually there's something on the line here i've got a possibility of winning or i'm in a important event you know i made it to this point you know you sort of can start to see it in those more positive terms then that's that's been shown to to be effective is there a way to quiet that chatter in in the first place you mean like not have the chatter (laughs) yeah so when I think of sort of a million dollar question, yeah, yeah, yeah no, but yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. attempt when, to answer. When I think it. of anxiety, a lot of anxiety just comes from self chatter, um, and, and it's it's you in your own head. Yeah. Is there a way to? It's a weird question, but is there a way to get out of your own head? Yeah. So, well, a lot of modern thera- therapy is now pushing towards an acceptance model actually so traditional sports psychology which a lot of sports psychologists now are really like negative on traditional sports psychology was all focused about reducing your arousal reducing your negative thoughts you know like really trying to remove these things and then it sort of came to a point where a lot of the modern sports psychologists were like well that doesn't really work people you know we've tried that you know and and people are just not good at that. Like, it's just really hard to manage your own thoughts. It's some of the hardest stuff mm. we do, you know, they're there. <laughs> you don't want to think about them and you think about them more. I mean, it's just like a really challenging thing for a person. Some people are better than others, but mm. a lot of people find it difficult. So it kind of went to this acceptance model and it's like, well, what we're going to do now is trying to just basically change our relationship with those feelings and those thoughts you know so we're gonna we're gonna know they're there but we're not gonna see them we're gonna try and not see them as such a negative thing or we're gonna try and get some distance from them so we're like we know this is just a thought you know we have them all the th- time they come and go you know it's not particularly special it's not particularly significant it's just another one of those thoughts you know and we try and create some distance there's, there's these ideas like you can um sing the thoughts in your head or or you can give them a name you know like um future boy or something or future girl you know if like if you're thinking too much about the future you can kind of like give them and you can sort of welcome their presence and and that sounds like something straight out of the film anger management yeah probably (laughs) Uh, anger management is is a mindfulness and acceptance Mm. this is sort of the name of this branch of psychology um i don't know if you ever read this book the confidence gap no, I have heard of that. 
it's also the happiness trap i haven't heard of that one russ harris yeah they're sort of quite famous books and this this is like the yeah the publicly accessible um version of yeah mindfulness and commitment therapy or mindfulness and acceptance therapy it's called mm. yeah so that's sort of the modern approach is to actually uh not not try and change it so much try and accept it and pursue a pursue a committed action with the presence of these things and i I think probably the effect of that is (coughs) if you achieve it is you actually reduce (laughs) your anxiety but that's not the goal you know the goal is to accept and only through the acceptance do you have any hope of reducing them yeah Mm. And with anxiety, I've, I know it is treated with a lot of anti-anxiety medication, not sports, mm. as you were talking about before. Yeah. I don't know how I feel personally about any uh, anti-anxiety medication. Yeah. Um, I've heard there's a lot of negatives to it. I've heard there's positives to it too. Yeah. Have you heard of the more the more natural treatments that are coming in now which is more so the psychedelic treatment no i don't know much about it but you can tell me yeah yeah um so there's treatments such as like this psilocybin treatment um like lsd treatment stuff like Uh that um i'm really interested to see there's been a lot more openness to it now obviously back in the 60s and up until pretty recently the doors are pretty close to it but it, yeah. it is looking pretty good now obviously those type of things probably wouldn't be recommended to sports athletes or anyone who's initiating in sports but just in anxiety in general or depression or ptsd it's it has been showing a pretty high success rate right yeah then these are much broader problems mm. of course yeah yeah yeah, yeah I, <laughs> performance is really weird when it comes to sports only because as I was talking about before, when it came mm. to choking, yeah. it came to someone who was going to choke before the game, then the middle of the game. Well, right. What? Yeah. Like, why? Why then, and not now? In terms of, so why are you choking in the middle of the game and not at the start of the game? Like, what? What has happened here? Uh-huh. Like, is it the person you were competing against or the team you're competing against? Yeah. Is, are they better than you thought they were going to be uh-huh. or what's caused that drop well i think there could be a lot of chance involved in how it plays out i mean so like people have a variable performance it's like a distribution of performances and someday you'll show up and you'll be calm you'll play well at the beginning just almost randomly i mean there's probably a reason but from our perspective it's it, it, it's effectively random you know you don't really know why um some days you show up anxious and play well some days you show up anxious and play badly some days you show up calm and play badly you know you must be too complacent so you know this these kind of like random events can occur and, and if, you, if if an important if a performance is really important to you uh, and you show up at the beginning and, and immediately begins badly you know then obviously those more resilient will stay calm and stay cool but those maybe less experienced or not you know or never been in that situation before they might panic a bit you know and they might be like they might yeah just 
essentially freak out a bit about what's going on and the performance will suffer and they'll sort of write themselves off at the beginning. But, you know, let's say they go in and it starts off reasonably well, then they might get to a certain point when they're actually, you know, when they're winning or when they're getting close to success. And like I was saying before, it's like when you're on the cusp of success, when it's really, when you're really almost there, that's when you can fall the furthest. That's the Mm. most potentially embarrassing situation that that exists it's not if you fail at the beginning it's like all right well you just could i mean maybe it should be but (laughs) it doesn't seem to be for people it seems to be like no i should have won and then i lost i was i showed signs of mental weakness you know i showed signs of weakness in something i'm supposed to be good at you know there's like a real stigma about i guess choking and and yeah in not appearing as mentally strong you know, it's like, oh, he just got in his own way. You know, or she got in her own way. You know, this is like, a, yeah, it's written about negatively in the media. It's a, it's kind of, there's a sort of a negative societal view of, of that kind of thing. So that's where you can fall the furthest, I think. And I so think that's why it can happen right at the end. So what you're trying to say is it's more embarrassing to fall right before the finish line than at the starting line. If you're supposed to win. Now, probably shouldn't be. Because in one version of that, you did a lot better, actually. <laughs> you know, if you got close to winning, then you did a lot better than failing at the beginning. But in some perverted way, it seems to be that this is how the media and fans and other people evaluate those situations. You know, they just sort of forget about that person who lost at the beginning. But the person that was almost going to win... And should have won and then dramatically lost. I mean, that's that seems to be really memorable. You've obviously heard of um, anxiety attacks. Yeah. Stuff like that. Does that happen pretty common in uh, sports athletes? So is that really common with, or not really common? Is it mm. common or does it happen with choking? I, I mean, I'm not too aware of, full-on anxiety attacks occurring where you know for example a panic attack where people believe they can't breathe Mm. are hyperventilating and and things like that um i'm i'm not too aware of those situations but people can certainly panic they can kind of (laughs) like i don't know let's phrase it lose their mind go completely blank um be not feel like they're themselves at all feel like they don't know how to do the thing that they've practiced their whole life you know really catastrophize the situation um so it's it's like the next best thing i suppose and you can sort of wipe out a someone's expertise what's the future for sports psychology so what Mm. are they looking at now what's the interests in sports psychology at the moment that's a good question i see a lot of people moving towards neuroscience and perception research and so as in visual or just uh, all senses a lot of eye movement research is going on so you can get um, glasses for example that can track eye movements and people can do a variety of even vigorous movements you know so people can play basketball and a bunch of other things you know with these glasses on they can track people's eye movements and they're trying to understand yeah, how information is being perceived and what happens when people are anxious. So that's one area. Um, there's also been a lot of improvements in 
uh, wearables, I suppose. You know, wearables. Wearables like devices you can wear that measure things about. So in terms of just heart rate or uh, no, it's better than that. So like muscle contractions, for example, um, and like electrical activity going through the yeah, brain. and, and brain okay. elect- electrical brain activity. For example, EEG measurement. You can yeah, buy yeah, you can yeah. buy bands. I don't know if you've heard of these things called the focus band, yeah. and they're basically EEG devices, but very they're simplified ones. The only EEG I've seen is the big plugs that they put right. in people's head and that just goes through the right. Machine. Yeah, yeah. So a classic problem with EEG is that it's not tolerant to movement, and so people have probably always wanted to measure people when they're doing sports mm. and to see what's going on in their brain, but really until recently it has not been possible and it's just getting a bit better now but it's still not good at vigorous movement but i did see a study where they measured the brains of table tennis players doing fairly gentle rallies Mm. and that's about where that's about where it's at at the moment um so yeah but that's that's sort of a place it's going but you can buy these um devices that just have like two eeg nodes on them and no they're commercial products I'm not sure anyone really knows how good they are, but but they give you neurofeedback. Essentially, they're like, "Oh, you're you had the appropriate alpha range wave at that moment," which kind of suggests you were focused in a way you should have been. And so the idea is, I suppose, for people to train the kinds of thoughts they can have, you know, directly. How precise are these things? Not very. <laughs> I mean, theoretically, not very. Um, like I say, they're commercial products. It's a bit hard to, to access. But in EEG in general is not super precise. Really? You can glean a few things from EEG. That's, mm. I find that interesting. Um, I know someone personally who's epileptic. Right. And, um, you know, she has seizures and so she'll have to get she gets she's had quite a few EEGs done right oh okay yeah so if they're not that precise in terms of reading things well or is it only certain things I wouldn't want to speak to those no 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 no, I I understand that um but yeah in 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 at least in the world of capturing precise brain effects Mm. in sport that might signify for example whether a performance is going to be good or bad or whether a movement will be successful or unsuccessful Mm. that research is in its infancy effectively but it can it can pretty much tell for example you're moving your left arm you're moving your right arm you're moving your left leg your right leg you're you're going to move this way you're going to move that way it can kind of break it down to that simplicity EEG is like there are other brain measuring techniques like fMRI mm-hmm. that give a better indication of that that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, but the EEG is just trying to measure the brain electricity. So okay. It's yeah. Not, yeah, necessarily. But you you can measure it on different sites of the brain, so you can yeah. be like, well, there was a spike in the brain electricity on the right side, and so you must in this mood yeah. area, and that implies that you know, the left side. Yeah, there was a left side movement. So when they're looking at these electrical readings, what are they looking for specifically? Yeah, so I mean, the one I've been become interested in myself that I'm sort of hoping to do something in, um, they've sort of found what they call a marker of performance. 
in the left hemisphere and it's 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 a it's like it's called a coactivity so there's a spike in one node that's being measured and there's a at the same time spike in another node and it's could you break that down a little bit more? yeah sorry sorry the eg so all right so the eg is measured with a cap and it has a bunch of they're called nodes they're just little measuring points basically and they there's usually like 30 for example and they attach to different spots on the scalp and over different areas of the brain and so what they've found is that um, in in let's just say unsuccessful motor actions there tends to be a spike in verbal areas of the brain over the left, left hemisphere at the same time as the spike in the um, movement planning areas of the brain or areas that have been associated with with those things and so there's sort of this co-activation and implies a communication in the brain there's a lot of implies and that's the reality like there are a lot of assumptions being made but there is this implication that in an unsuccessful performance there is interference to the motor areas from the verbal areas which is what i was getting at er earlier and it implies yeah like an overthinking or a thinking about the specific thinking about the movement that can cause interference what the ideal situation is for a movement for an expert movement for someone who's rehearsed it you know hundreds of thousands of times is just isolated input from the movement areas it should just be a the movement areas of the brain should control the movement and that's that's essentially what the practice has allowed that person to do that's kind of incredible yeah but then if there's this input from other areas of the brain peripheral areas external areas to the movement then effectively that's considered interference and so so you can detect that from eeg so that's basically detecting self chatter that's the theory it's not totally clear cut if that's but that's but it, it's it's all sort of correlational but, but yeah it theoretically tell you if someone's going to perform bad potentially it does that's incredible uh, so, to a certain extent so it's it's like so does negativity chatter come from a certain part of the brain compared to not <laughs> no i think this is a, a really good question positive in in terms of an eeg measurement positive chatter and mm. negative chatter will come from well, the same, I, I suppose it's same place hard. yeah it is kind of hard to test i mean if you said to someone you talking to yourself really badly right now now i am <laughs> yeah essentially you're biased by whether the performance is good or not and yep. then the assumption would be that that there was some input to the movement so so of a principle of in sports psychology is that you shouldn't think too much about the movement so when you're a novice you know when you're just learning a sport you kind of get taught mm. like you need to move your arm this way or you need to get your leg or whatever or your body in, into these positions um but through excessive repetition you know you no longer need to have those thoughts and that's that's useful like if you imagine basketball and you you're great at dribbling the basketball then you can think about where to pass you know or if you're driving you've learned you know how to change gears and you have to think about that and you can pay attention to the road like it's very adaptive it's very useful for people to not have to think about the movements they're doing after practice so 
But also, if you do think about it, that has an interference effect, like to a certain extent. Like maybe you can tolerate a few technical thoughts if you're a cricketer or something, but you can't have too many and you can't have too much and you can't think about too much about what you're doing, otherwise it amounts to interference. And that's like one of the more convincing effects in the literature is that the thinking too much about the movements results in poor performance. And that's what they think they can pick up in the EEG. And what are they trying to read with these glasses reading eye movements? Right. Um, there's this thing that's called the quiet eye. This is one of the main things. So at some point in the 90s, they worked out that there was this predictive quality of certain eye movements that allowed them to predict. It was in free throws in basketball and allowed them to predict to a certain extent successful free throws or unsuccessful free throws. So it's kind of like when you throw a ball in the air, your hand's kind of already in the position the ball's going to land? So what the quiet eye is, is it's the... What they found was that the final fixation, which is like a point where you're not blinking, like the final look at the hoop, the length of that final look predicted success or failure of the shot. And specifically... If this period, this final fixation was longer, then that resulted in better performance than if the final fixation was shorter. And this is actually a very robust finding over like 20 years that you can predict a bunch of movements, the success of a bunch of movements from this final fixation. (coughs) So the idea is that this is, I don't know, they call it like a critical period for the brain to get the information it needs to plan the movement it's like the final bit of data that the brain uses and if it doesn't get enough then it doesn't program the movement as well and if it gets what it needs it programs <laughs> programs the movement well and it they've shown things like if players are anxious and by anxious i mean they self-report anxiety you know they're not really sure in any other way um, but they say that they were anxious then this quiet eye mm. period reduces. I have a few uh, tangents and questions. There. Yeah. <laughs> one, one is um, people lie. I yeah. mean, people, oh, yeah. are, people are notorious liars. Uh-huh. So it's one of those things where if you're building these frames or eyeglasses or EEG things and you're only reporting off what people are saying, people lie. Mm. And it's, it's, it's really, you're really... <clears throat> hoping that people aren't acting human (laughs) yeah (laughs) we do yeah it's true and it is there's a lot of things anxiety is typically self-reported i mean you could there are correlational measures of course but they're not you know essentially it's defined by the person and if they say they're anxious and they're not then there's not much anyone could do about that probably the good thing in, in sports psych is that you can link it to performance i mean there's just some true thing you can link mm. it to now whether you want to introduce whether your research question centers around anxiety or not that's when you introduce the self-report mm. and the possibility that people well maybe they don't really know or maybe yeah they think they should say something and these are possibilities now with the self-report though do you think it would come a time where People will know if people are lying, so they'll have these. <laughs> yeah, okay. You say you, you got these 
Probably. <laughs> like EEGs or some sort of, I don't know, um, some sort of brain reader that's telling you that saying, no, this individual's might be lying based off past evidence that I've done where individuals mm. have also lied. Well, I suppose they yeah, do have the lie detector. Yeah, I know that's <laughs> yeah, I know, but that's been proven to be yeah. crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know when that will happen. But it is yeah, it's one just, day. It's one of those things that I see a flaw, that's all. Yeah. Um Yeah, like it's a valid concern. It's a genuine concern. The assumption is that yeah, people are being honest. Mm. So <laughs> read into that what you will. Mm. Yeah. Um <laughs> Another thing was when you're talking about the the eye movement. Yeah. Is it coming down that last look at the basketball hoop as you put it? Is it coming yeah. down to really the fine line? Tell me what you mean. So let's just say we'll take basketball analogy. Yeah. You're about to shoot shoot the hoop. That last look at the the basketball hoop. Is that just before taking the shot? Is it coming really down to that fine line of I've looked at the hoop and I've taken my shot. Right. That split second. Yeah. Is that, uh, are you suggesting that maybe that's not realistic or there's got to be other things that are involved in the outcome beyond just this final look at the hoop? I suppose a bit of both. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the existence of the quiet eye and other things like it like the the eeg mm. marker i was discussing earlier it kind of implies that the movement is decided before the movement occurs and that's intriguing notion really that's like i and i find that to some extent a bit implausible um that that thinking or thoughts or anything that's going on in the brain isn't fast enough that like the movement couldn't be decided to some extent during the movement or at least the early parts of the movement. Uh, this is actually what I'd like to measure. It was actually one of the things I wanted to do was to check if this EEG marker was present in the early part of the movement. So mm. what I what I plan to do is get people to do like an underarm throw, just a very simple movement task. And I want to see if we can find evidence of this overthinking in the sort of, I suppose, the backswing of the arm motion after the movement has been initiated. Because it intrigues me that the time frame of what's going on here. Um, the other thing you've, probably the other things you're referring to is, yeah, there are a lot of variables. I mean, there are a lot of variables. So it's not like a, a one-to-one, you know, it's not like perfect. Mm. You know, it, it accounts for, it's a significant effect in statistical terms you know so it's it's a there's kind of a bias towards the quiet eye predicting the outcome mm. but it's not like it always gets it right and there's still variability that is not accounted for by the quiet eye and there surely there are other things going on and it does to some extent seem a little bit arbitrary and we also don't really know if the brain what's happening when the eyes sort of go quiet at that moment you know the assumption is that the brain is receiving critical information but we're not even really sure it's kind of the difference between looking and seeing like we don't actually 
know that that yeah. connection is occurring so it's yeah it's an interesting area are there contradictions to the quiet eye there's there's controversies yeah so it's not totally agreed upon so there is this thing called the efficiency paradox where typically when experts when they get better at things everything about their expertise is more efficient everything about in for example in movements in sporting movements or musical movements um they use less muscle energy they're they they use less neural energy yeah it's, it's sort of things simplify you know and they become simpler and there's kind of less of everything not more of everything but here we have a phenomenon where we're saying oh this expert needs more time to get the information they need to execute the movement well and it's like well why would they need more time why if they're so good at this why can't they get that information quickly you know why wouldn't the quiet a short quiet eye reflect you know expertise or better performance do you yeah. know what i mean yeah so yeah. Are, are you trying to say that if someone's That's getting if, if someone's getting better at something they shouldn't have to do it more exactly yeah yeah, yeah so that's sort of the controversy it is a bit of, it's a it's there's still controversy it's still a bit of a mysterious effect and it's not totally understood um the other thing that happens in eye movements is that when a lot of this is done in self-paced tasks like free throw you know um or darts or shooting that's where a lot of this groundwork in sports psychology has been done because these are situations where there's a lot more control for the researcher sort of stuff where you have to be visually more focused exactly so yeah aiming archery darting slow shooting. aiming yeah. golf putting is a very yeah. classic it's a lot of the research is done in these areas they're just it's just practical you really just, it's just easier to do and the devices work well in in these situations and what they find is that um there is a loss of efficiency before poor performances and during anxious performances. So what that means is that um, people will make more eye fixations. So they will, when a fixation is when the eye stops on a spot, that's a fixation. You know, then it will move again and then it will stop on another spot. That's another fixation. And so they'll make more fixations like around their target. Um, and so it's kind of like, and when they're doing well or when they perform well, they'll make less fixations. And when they're not anxious, they'll make less fixations. So it's sort of a, there's an inefficiency to what they're doing. But it is curious because we don't really know why that is. Like we don't really know what they're looking at. When So you can sort of imagine an anxious athlete or an athlete who's about to fail, their eyes are darting a bit more in, in these aiming tasks. Um, but we don't know why they're darting, you know, or what the brain is looking for. It could be, if you think in an evolutionary context, it could be that it's looking for some threat, you know, like you imagine scanning the environment for information, searching for an escape or <laughs> something something along those lines. But, yeah, we don't know any of this. I find the human ability to be visually precise incredible. Mm. So dart throwers, mm. archery, shooting... You see how precise they can be and the way they know where to put the bow or put the gun or put yeah. their hand to measure up the... And but 
some people are also different. So someone who holds a dart here to throw it and hit the bullseye, someone might hold it a bit off center yeah. and throw it and hit the bullseye. Right, yeah. But, but they're still visually looking at the same thing. It's yeah. Just, that, that's very strange to me. But I find well, it, it is sort of a, it is a mir- miracle of, of evolution, I suppose, and a very adaptive thing to be able to aim a thing. If you think of a spear or something mm. like that, like it sort of makes sense that... Uh, that we we learned, you know, these precise. Well, the, we developed the ability to throw. Yeah. But to be so precise. Yeah. And I think uh, what you were saying before, um, I think as we get better at something, we do have to practice more. I mean, if you take a a black belt in any martial arts, I guarantee you they're probably training way more than a white belt is. Yeah. Because yeah. They're, they're honing their skills a lot more. I think. Um, the whole if you already learn something why should have to do it so much i actually think if you do know something you got to do it more because you got to keep your skills sharp yeah that's just no point. it's true and it's there's sort of um there's sort of like an endless number of movement solutions mm. you know and like in in sport it's always everything's changing a little bit you know like there's just subtle changes all the time. So like if you think in tennis, you know, the ball's coming at a different pace and a different spin. Um, in golf, you know, you have a, the ball sitting in a different position. There's a different amount of wind. It might be the ground might be on an angle. There's all these different things. So And, and the expertise, well, you know, really, it's like how long is a piece of string? It never really ends. You know, there's millions of movement solutions and, and the, the more situations an athlete knows how to handle and the better they can handle these these variations in movements, that's that's really the definition of their skill, you know, how broad their skill is. When it comes to visual perception, hmm. how is it, especially in sports, that we know where something's going to be before it gets there? So for if, if someone throws a ball, we can visually look at it and we know it's going to land here by looking at it. Yes. Well... <laughs> To me, mathematics, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I know, but we're not even calculating. We're just moving to the, to yeah. the area as we're watching it. Well, I can only presume that we are calculating subconsciously and that there is some part of the brain I, that... I can tell you I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> subconsciously. <laughs> There's some part of the brain that you have no awareness of that is making calculations, mm. you know, and it is making predictions on the basis of those calculations and the signals are getting sent to move your muscles to those, mm. you know, move your legs and get into that position and put your hand in that position. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an analytics mathematical exercise for the subconscious parts of the brain. I can only assume. Going back to the amateur versus the elite and the mm. practicing difference, especially yeah. in sports. Have you ever, you obviously know Bruce Lee. Yeah. Um, there's a, a pretty sure it was in the film Enter the Dragon and okay. there was a student where Bruce Lee asked him show me I think it was either a roundhouse kick or a uh-huh. I can't remember I think it was a roundhouse kick anyway it doesn't matter um, but the student just throws the kick out there and he says no you're not throwing it correct because when you throw a kick in practice feel the kick don't just throw the kick Right. anyone can just kick yeah. But really feeling that kick through the movement yeah. will make you a better kicker. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, the few things that are meant to help. One is 
this thing called an external focus. And the idea of an external focus is that you think about what you want, let's say a ball, or whatever you're throwing or kicking, what what you want to happen, you know? So, you, and it's really an external focus is anything that's outside the body. So, for example, there's studies that show that if you think about the target, as opposed to think about thinking about the movement, um, then you're more likely to hit the target, which is sort of a direct contradiction of what you're saying. But mm. there's there's a lot of contradictions in this area, and it's not very easy to understand because when people have flow experiences, do you know what flow is? Are you sort of familiar with that idea? Yeah. Well, wouldn't you, in terms of flow, wouldn't you be? So I'm right-handed. I'm uh-huh. going to flow better with my right hand than my left. Right. If someone asks me to, as you just said focusing on the, the target rather than the movement if I'm throwing with my left hand odds are I'm going to be focusing more on the movement than I am on right. the target so anyway in flow experiences people talk about how they have an enhanced awareness mm. of what they're doing um, and you know time stands still and other you know wonderful things where they're not <clears throat> they're fully in the present they're fully immersed in the experience mm. so on one hand we have these flow experiences which kind of imply that, yeah, just as Bruce Lee suggests, you know, like being immersed in the movement is is optimal. And then we have evidence that suggests that if you focus on your body too much and you think about your movement too much, then that results in interference. And they kind of like seem like they're not really consistent. And there are there must be some middle ground yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, maybe there, you should there, do both <laughs> there are some yeah obviously some qualitative differences between between those two states of mind but it is hard to just think yourself into flow mm-hmm. it seems to just it seems to just kind of happen to people i suppose depending on their level of preparation and how comfortable they are in their situation and yeah how much mental preparation they've done for an event but yeah i have a really um interesting personal story on that one so as i told you before i'm an nfl fan with um when you throw an nfl ball um specifically the the end of the point of the throw Mm. the last thing that's meant to be touching the ball is your index finger right okay that's meant to be sort of the last point of contact yeah now that really helped me develop a better throw but into doing that like if i just kept throwing and throwing my throws weren't getting better until i started focusing more on okay just make sure your index finger is the last thing touching that ball yeah and that's when i started developing a better spiral on the ball as i threw it right so constantly focusing on make sure your index finger is the last thing touching it the last thing touching it eventually helped me develop a better throw yeah okay it's, okay, so yes, this is actually a pretty interesting area. And this this is like the area of what should a person think about, you know, when they're making a movement? Mm. What should what should an expert think about especially? Mm. And who, like I say, they don't really need as much those like instructive thoughts about how to make the movement. But to some extent, yeah, that's probably maybe that's a technical improvement for you and and you've obviously got some connection between that thought and the outcome Mm -hmm. this this like this thought results in a positive outcome um 
to some extent i think and this is really just my opinion <laughs> i don't think it's it's really That's been, fine. <laughs> it's really been researched but i think that if you are satisfied that this thought results in a positive outcome then that's it almost doesn't matter what the content of that thought is so the, the research i was talking about it implies that all it implies is that on average if you think about something external to your body in a range of movements that results in a better performance than thinking about something internal and what you've described to me sounds kind of internal mm. you know so Having said that, it's an average. This is how statistics are done. It's essentially based on the average. That doesn't apply to everyone. You know, some people have different experiences and some people will do, and some people really like need those technical thoughts. Mm. Well, at least they think they need them, you know, and and that's that amounts to the same thing in sport, you know, and they, they're like, if I don't have a clear technical thought, then I can't perform well, you know, and I can't, focus on the task appropriately and I lose track of of what I'm doing and so I think it's very helpful yeah to just believe in it actually you know mm. and almost I don't I'm not sure the content matters just gotta believe <laughs> yeah and that could come from a coach or something like that yeah. like if, if, if it's so I like to play golf mm. and one of the the greatest things to do in golf is to have a golf lesson because it's like the only time when your success is not your problem. You have outsourced your success to this person standing next to you who now it's their problem to work out how to hit the ball straight. And it, there's a little bit of magic about having a golf lesson. And a, a golf coach can say a bunch of different things and you can leave that session, you know, hitting the ball magically. Mm. And, and then... And then you can go away later and, you know, it's not the same. But but it's like if you if you believe it, you're like, this has come from an authoritative source and I believe that what they're saying is true and I believe that my movement is correct and going to result in an outcome and that is very powerful for achieving a good outcome. So do you think even doing the same movement as you did with the coach to compare to without it, mm. even if it is the same... You're going to think to yourself, no, it's not the same. Yeah, well, it can be a bit hard to judge. But I think, I mean, if the movement's the same, then the outcome should be the same. But I think what happens is that... Or um, do you think the outcome is different because you're getting in your own head again because the coach isn't there? Yes, which would affect the movement. But yeah, okay. that's the chain of events. Mm. Like, the coach isn't there. I'm not sure what I'm doing anymore. I don't have that endorsement about what I'm thinking. <laughs> and then yeah that results in an excess of thinking and that results in probably an, er in an erratic movement or a variable movement that's not as, that's not as good getting back to the movement as well like mm. <clears throat> i don't play gridiron myself I, yeah. I do just like to throw the ball yeah and as i was talking about that last touch of the index finger on the end of the ball helps me get the spiral helps yeah. me throw a bit better yeah <clears throat> however if you put me in the game, if you put me in a game, most likely my autonomous yeah. movement will probably kick in again and I'll end right. up going back to my bad ways, which would be where I'm just throwing the ball because now I'm under pressure. Yeah. So where I was trying to come from was perhaps 
practicing with constant feel over and over and over and mm-hmm. over again will eventually develop that aut- autonomously. Got with the Bruce Lee kick analogy again. Yeah, so it, it sort of brings us to an interesting idea, um, which is, let's just say you perfect something in practice, you know, will then you be able to do that that thing when you're under pressure? You know, is is that sufficient to perform well, you know, when the stakes are high in a sporting context and you have little time, time pressure, whatever, negative thoughts, various other anxious feelings? And the answer is is probably not enough. Um, it's it seems to be that like expertise is quite a context specific thing, and if you train in calm circumstances with limited pressure. Um, that's very good for technical skill. That's actually necessary for learning. But also, it kind of results in you only knowing how to do that thing in that context to some extent. So when you go into a high-pressure environment, it can feel very different. Actually, like your body can feel different. Uh, the situation can seem different. There's like this perception of difference. Like you're getting an out-of-body experience. A little bit. Yeah, people yeah. talk about that. Um, and it can make and it can be and it can be very distracting and it can and it can make you hyper-focus on your body. It can have a range of effects that are not necessarily helpful for your executing the way you did in practice. And the key to resolving that issue is training in higher pressure circumstances. And that's that's something that seems to work and finding, and it doesn't have to be as high pressure. So this is something that has been demonstrated. Um, doesn't have to be because obviously people talk about like in afl like you can't generate the same amount of pressure in training as you can in the game and obviously that's true but it seems to be that if you can put people under some you know middle ground limited amount of pressure where they're like something of the sort something of the sort where they've acted you know where there's something on the line where they kind of think it's a bit important where they have some anxiety symptoms if you can place them in that situation then they can kind of independently almost... Basically do this well or you're doing 100 push-ups. Uh, that kind of thing, yeah. That kind of thing, it kind of works. Then they can kind of learn how to manage that anxiety a bit better. And and they can develop the expertise as an anxious person, not just as a calm person. And then when they're anxious in the performance situation, they can draw on that anxious person expertise. I suppose that's why they always have amateur leagues too, before they're heading up to the professional. So if you're a amateur afl player mm-hmm. and you're just playing in front of friends and family and um you know you got your teammates friends and family there so you got a crowd not a massive crowd like you're playing at the mcg but you got a crowd yeah you, know, you probably got a crowd of i don't know say like 200 people yeah. but there's still some pressure there yeah it's not mcg pressure but exactly. it's it, but it's there and the same thing could be said with fighting yeah. or gridiron or any sport it's the, where it's you... the principle of the dress rehearsal in theater for mm. example you know you sort of get into yeah, the theater's a bit different too well it is different you're not even performing in front of people before you do it you're literally no you're just doing it in front of your director basically and then yeah you... but that's not necessarily a problem because you're still kind of you're getting quite close to the event itself so for, for a start you're close to the event so you can imagine you can start to think about how it will be on the opening night. You 
are in the clothes. It starts at a certain time. This is like good job interview preparation, for example, hmm. or something like that. If to, to do some kind of a mock interview is very effective and it's very helpful. Um, and if you do do that just with one person don't do it with a positive parent because that is going to tell you did <laughs> okay, well sure. either way <laughs> sure but even just going through that motion of like oh it starts at this time I wear these clothes I go to a room you know I sit there and I have questions directed at me you can start to experience some of the elements of the actual performance and you can start to yeah develop some resilience to that yeah if you're doing a mock interview or a mock theatre performance, it all comes down to who you're doing it in front of too. Like if you're doing it, as I said before, if you're doing it in front of a loving parent, they're probably yeah. not going to be too critical of you. Probably just going to be like, oh, you did really well. Yeah. I think there is a big value of having someone who's going to be very critical of you. Yeah. Especially when it comes to performance. Yes. This is true. Yes, because that ultimately what you're worried about <laughs> yeah 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 uh negative judgment but i still don't know if i can completely agree with um the theater thing only because okay i'll give you another example in a sport context so yeah. it's just a matter of trying to match the the, the intensity the train yeah the match the intensity so there's a good example that i read about in um preparation for soccer penalties mm-hmm. and you know, there's a bunch of ways you could do that. Obviously, it involves the penalties themselves. But this sports psychologist in particular, what he did was in the like the mock penalty, he made the players walk from the center line alone, you know, to the penalty spot. Because this is what happens in the actual penalty shootout. Mm. But typically, a lot of the preparations that this team was doing, they were kind of just like lining up next to each other and taking their penalties. But by matching it a bit closer to the actual performance where they do that solo walk it's like a very lonely kind of like people watching them waiting for them to get to the spot you got your team there watching exactly and this you know this is like this is quite a clever way of of matching the the intensity of the practice situation to the real Mm. situation and going through some of those feelings that you would go through you know on the day can all this help with choking yes yes it's sort of a known Practicing under pressure. This is one of the better solutions on offer <laughs> from sports psychology. Mm. Yeah, and just go and working ways, working out ways to make people experience consequences and make people feel a bit anxious. There was a study. It's kind of curious actually, where they had darts players. They made them practice. They made one group practice like on a high ladder. I don't know, super high. <laughs> and they were throwing darts on this high ladder, which sort of activated like a fear of falling, anxiety. I think that was sort of strapped up or something. But yeah, I was, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> sure. Yeah, went through some ethical approval. Anyway, Definitely. So, so one group was practicing darts, you know, like on this high wall, and another group was just practicing on the ground level and randomized. So they randomized one group to high, high dart practice and one group to the standard dart practice. And then they put both groups under pressure and the the group that had... What's the pressure of the person on the ladder? You start shaking it? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. So then they threw darts on the ground under pressure. And, when, and usually in this sort of field, pressure involves maybe bringing in some kind of an audience, adding some prizes, possibly like some sort of selector, okay. some cover story about how it's going to affect their team performance. This is, this is how, yeah. it's, how it's typically done. 
Anyway, the group that had been practicing on the high wall would, did significantly better under the high pressure situation than the group that had been practicing on the low wall. And it kind of suggests that all you have to do is match some of the symptoms. Do you think that's because they... F- I, don't I don't know if this is true. I don't, do you think that's because they felt superior to the people below them? <laughs> I mean, I look, I, t- it's, I can't maybe rule. maybe not straight up, but there might be an underlying thing of, you know, these people are beneath me. <laughs> uh, I can't rule out your explanation. It's because it's a little bit of a weird study anyway, so it's probably the kind of thing that we'd want to like replicate. But um, it sort of goes to the point that that maybe you don't need to exactly match the intensity but you need to bring it up you know in order to get some protective effect under pressure mm. yeah hey well look um this has been really good i've i've, I've really liked talking to you it's been um but before we go thank you for coming on the podcast by it's, the way it's a pleasure and is there any like social media or anything you'd like to plug before we go as well uh well actually no i mean i'm just working in academia now so there's there's no doesn't really i mean i do have twitter (laughs) plug away if you want at leo james r (laughs) if you're if you're interested and i i publish i put up some of my sports psychology papers on there so but that's about all other than that i'm just working at the university of melbourne cool hey leo thanks for coming on it it was really fun talking to you and um yeah thank you yeah it was awesome thank you thank you